It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Who was Billie Holiday? What was the message behind her famous song, Strange Fruit? And how does her legacy live on today? We'll answer all of these questions and more on this edition of Getting Schooled. I'm Abby Hornacek. Today we're discussing one of the most incredible voices in jazz, the one, the only, Lady Day. Billie Holiday's mesmerizing voice wasn't the only attribute that kept her in the public eye. She was also adamant about using her music and platform to spotlight the injustices plaguing the African-American community. She did this in many ways, but most notably by performing her impactful song, Strange Fruit. So how did Billie Holiday influence the jazz industry? What impact did she have on the civil rights movement? And why did she have such a tumultuous relationship with the FBI? Well, here to talk me through all of this is the author of With Billy, A New Look at the Unforgettable Lady Day, Julia Blackburn. And Julia joins me now. Julia, how's it going? It's going well. Thank you, Abby. Yes. Thank you so much for coming on Getting Schooled. My pleasure. My pleasure. It's always a pleasure to talk about Billy. Oh, that is right. It's a pleasure to talk about her and it is a pleasure to listen to her. I mean, she is truly a spectacular person. And, you know, I want to get into Billie Holiday and her role in the civil rights movement. But first, I want to just get to know her because you did a lot of research for your book. Um, you know, she was the first black woman to be accompanied by an all white band. She really became an icon in the music world. But she also rose to that notoriety while dealing with addiction. She was sought after by the FBI. FBI's narcotics team for her illicit drug use and possession. So she was a woman of many layers, Julia. Can you just break down her life and who you believe she is? Uh-huh. Okay. Well, I think, I mean, first of all, I think that the that how people talk about her, she's a she's a famous icon, she's a figure in everybody's mind. You know, so many people admire her singing. But I do think that her reputation was not re- is not well done. I think she was a much more important political figure. And I actually think, I mean, people at the time have said that she was a crucial figure at the start of the civil rights movement. But the story of her life was that she was born in Baltimore in 1915, um, a child in a great poverty and a very sort of tough time in all, you know, in all of America, but in a place like Baltimore City, very much so. She learned to sing by the age of 13. She went to the um, whorehouses to, to where they played piano and they, then people were singing and Bessie Smith songs were going on. And there she discovered, by going there and listening, she discovered that she had a voice. And with that voice, from a, really from a 13-year-old, that was then the, the, the way that she could um, get out of the poverty, get out of the chaos of that time in America. She went to New York to join her mother when her mother had gone ahead to live in Harlem um, in another brothel, another tough place in the city. And there she, at the age of 15, she started going to clubs and singing to make money. Um, and you can always cut this out later, but she said, hell, I realized I could make more money standing up than I could lying down. 
Um, so she was, <laughs> she was really, she was an extraordinarily strong character right from the start. And she was singing in the clubs and then she got um, discovered. She was heard by um, John Hammond. John Hammond discovered her, heard her playing in one of the clubs and signed her up for Columbia Records. And with that, in the 30s, she made an enormous number, I think, well, it makes it's four, six, I think I've got the complete Columbia recordings and it's something like 12 CDs of songs. Wow. Um, and, and with that, she she began. She, she began with her reputation and with her, you know, people came to listen to her from all over. Um, but then there was the problem of Harlem and racism being so extreme at that time. Um, and so she would play indeed. She was the first black woman to play with a white band, but she had to go in by a different entrance to go and sing. She wasn't allowed to travel with the band. All these extraordinary limitations on her public appearances. So finally she got, a, a, she got work at the newly opened Café Society run by Barney Josephson, who believed in non-segregation. Non he said, people are people and let's get, let's get, to, to get together and, and have, have music and have a good time. So there she started singing and crowds of people came because she is, as you'll know if you hear her, she had this miraculous voice. Um, and it was there at, at Cafe Society that a man called Mirapol came, Abel Mirapol, and offered her a song to sing called Strange Fruit. And that was really where her life changed. Mm. And she had a shift because she then was singing something completely to the heart of the problem of America about lynching. Um, and with that, she fell into political troubles with the FBI and they later the narcotics agency and life got very complicated for her. All right, we've got to step aside for a quick recess, but we'll be back right after this. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. You know, you mentioned 30s and 40s. She really rose and, and she started kind of doing something that women of color at that time weren't doing, even men of color. I mean, she was she was becoming popular. What do you think it was about her that allowed her to rise to such fame despite all of the uh, political tensions at that time? I think if you it, that it was a simple thing that she had a voice that transcended everything, and she didn't sing. She although she's talked about you know like the book is called Lady Sings the Blues, the point was that she wasn't singing the blues. She was singing torch songs. She was singing the same songs that then Frank Sinatra, who actually had a long talk with her at one time to find out how she did the singing so well, and she just <laughs> said. You've got to get the. You've got to get people to follow every single word to get the message. But she was singing songs that were universal, and that in itself later was seen as a political statement by the by the FBI and people. But she was singing these universal songs like "Them Their Eyes" or "Sunny Side of the Street," which is nothing to do with the the tradition of blues. It's just of the American songbook, the great American songbook. 
And so that meant that she was in a new bracket somehow within New York and bit by bit in many, many parts of America and then hugely in Europe, of course. Was she the original offer of Strange Fruit? No, no. Strange Fruit, she was the original singer of it, except that the man who wrote it, he'd written it, he'd, he'd seen photos of lynching in the 30s, the terrible photos. And from that, he was so horrified, he wanted to write. He was a communist, he was a political activist. He wrote a song originally just for political meetings, and his wife sang it. But then he'd heard Billie Holiday singing at this cafe society, um, and he suddenly had the idea of going there, meeting her, and saying, would she sing it? And she looked at the, you know, listened to it on the piano, tried singing it. Later, people said, oh, she didn't understand it because of this whole idea of making her stupid. But the thing that the only question she had to ask him was, what does pastoral mean? If you remember in that song, it's pastoral scene mm -hmm. of the gallant South with the bulging eyes and the twisted mouth, scent of magnolia, sweet and fresh, then the sudden smell of burning flesh. She asked that one question, what does pastoral mean? And she then was singing it night after night in cafe society. And it was made, although she couldn't get Columbia to record it, it was made into a record by um, another company. And it was, it was an enormous success. It became the voice of the beginning of the civil rights movement. Every, a copy of the record was sent to every member of the, of the, um, of the house, in, in, you know, every political member. And it was said, at first, people said at the time, it was thought she was going to be given what was called a Springgarn Medal for, for helping with, uh, with civil rights movements. People said that she, was, she should be, you know, that she should become a major figure. But because it was so outspoken, that song, it meant that she became politically dangerous. Mm. That's my interpretation. And so she was actually told by the, the FBI came to Cafe Society and they said, we'll only let you go on singing in, you know, going to clubs singing um, if you stop singing that song. And if you don't stop it, we're going to make your life hell. And that was the start of her trouble. Wow. Um, you it know, is crazy. There, yeah. It is crazy because I, on one hand, you have a song that rose to enormous success. But on the other mm -hmm. side of it is the controversy because she was really shedding light on such a horrible thing that was going yeah. on. Um, and yeah. so you're saying she was met with resistance, too, from the FBI. Did that play a role in then them coming and, and trying to bust her for uh, narcotics? Well, the thing is that, yes, absolutely, because the, the bit was the, I mean, the, 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 how can one put it, that she was told, yes, they, they told her that she couldn't sing it, and she actually got to the point where she'd have a contract with different, you know, different places where she was going to sing, saying she'd only sing at the, at the bar, at the, at the cafe, at the club, if she was allowed to sing Strange Fruit. And because of that, her determination, then the FBI and the terrible narcotics um, agency with Anslinger, who were very much using drugs as a way of political control, they, it seems, as when the research that I did and these long interviews that I was using for my book, um, that the, the, the drug arrest was completely fabricated. She did drink a lot. She did smoke marijuana until marijuana became illegal. She did have friends, boyfriends. It was, it was all the jazz people 
drifted sometimes towards heroin. But she was, or not all, but an awful lot of them, but she was not particularly, as far as one can tell, she had times of being on heroin, but a lot of times not. And a lot of it was people putting it on her. But the account from the the guy who was involved in the arrest for that time when she was sent to prison, um, he said that it was a completely put up job, that she wasn't, she didn't have any drugs with her. But she was arrested. They they planted something outside the front door and then arrested her, um, and they put her in prison. And then with that, after she was in prison for a year, um, they took away her what was called her cabaret card, and that meant she couldn't sing anywhere in New York that had a drinking license, mm. which meant that she basically lost her her job, her life, and had to go touring round and about. On top of that, the FBI, according not only to her, but many people who knew her, the FBI and the narcotics agency would send out, they'd find out in advance where she was going to be playing, and they'd send hecklers to come to the, to the, into the audience and start sort of shouting abuse at her. They'd warn the management and say, she's a heroin addict, you're going to get trouble if she comes, although she was actually very, very rarely didn't turn up. So she was... As I see it from this archive that I used, which was interviews with people who had known her, put together by a, a very bright, determined woman called Linda Cool. She did interviews with about 60 different people who had known Billy, and it was done in the 1970s, so they were still, many of them were old, but, but with lots of memory. And a totally different picture emerges from those interviews. What's, what's really... Um kind of unfortunate to to really reflect on is, like you said, I mean, whether or not she was using as much drugs or as many drugs, I, I should say, as people were accusing her of or if they were planted on her, things like that. But she would unfortunately pass away due to drug and alcohol related problems at the age of 44. July 17th, 1959 uh, is when she died. So how do you think she managed that between, all right, people are accusing me of these things, maybe there is some truth to it, but also, do you think that led to her eventual death, the reason for her eventual death, I should say? Um, I might be, I, when this is, it is a very complicated story. In 19, she was, she was not allowed to, to, to sing in New York, so her life became a misery. She had a very difficult, McKay, her husband, was a very controlling, aggressive man, but then at the same time, she needed a controlling, aggressive man to kind of keep her going, you know, to sort of protect her in some ways. Her agent was also pretty damn complicated. And she was living at the time just before her death, in the year two or three years before her death, she was in a terrible state. She couldn't be, if anybody, because the book Lady Sings the Blues had been published, using drugs as the main story in it, even though people like Norman Grants and others wrote to the author of that book and said, you're going to ruin her with this. You're making a story out of the drugs and it's going to make her life impossible. Um, so that the, the book became notorious. She got to the point where she couldn't even rent an apartment in New York under her name, Billie Holiday, because she, nobody would have her. She had to use her maiden name, her, 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 you know, her real name. Um, and, she was in a dreadful state. And then she was invited in 1958. She was invited to Europe because her reputation in Europe as a singer was tremendously high. She was invited on a European tour. 
which was complicated, but she managed it. She did it. She was not well. She was drinking a lot of alcohol. It was thought that she wasn't actually on heroin at that time mm. at all. And when she was, people who, who knew about the sort of medical thing looked at her arms, the hospitals looked at her arms and said, there's old scars, but there's no, new, no signs of use. She went on this European tour. She came back and at the airport, she was arrested by the um, FBI and told that she should have had a, a special kind of warrant for travelling to Europe, and therefore she was in danger of going to prison. Wow. Was that typical she... at the time with other people? Well, it was that they chose her. She fitted so well. She was not a good public speaker. She was a singer, not a speaker. And people like the head of the, of the narcotics agency, Anslinger, said she's, she's perfect for us. She's a tremendously public figure and yet she somehow can be used as a we want we need a big figure as a to 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 put into prison to humiliate to show that we mean business with narcotics and she's arrested she then gets starts drinking heavily and says to Dafti if you were being chased like I am you'd start drinking like I'm drinking mm. um, and she had a collapse from the drinking and was put into hospital and when she was taken to a private hospital and they saw the old scars on her arm and said, no, no, she's going to go to the Metropolitan Hospital. And when she was in that, then the FBI came and officially threatened to put her in prison. And with that, she lost heart. And then on, on top of that, it seems that somebody who she thought was an, uh, a police agent put some white powder under her pillow and said that that was the drugs and proved oh. that she was still using. It's a complete mistake of a story about this woman. And I'm, I'm sounding maybe too dramatic, but if you if you read the book, it's not me making it up or making interpretations. It's all these different people, her piano player, her piano players, the policeman who arrested her, the, the whole lot of them are all talking very openly. And a lot of them very shocked by what happened because they often were implicit in it, but they, it got out of hand. And she was, she was such an outspoken, hard-talking, hard-drinking, no-nonsense. You know, she'd hit people. She'd shoved a bottle, a broken bottle, in the face of a white guy who insulted her at, at a bar. You know, she was a tough she woman. She was spicy. <laughs> she was as spicy as anything. And I think that she was, yes, absolutely. And she was, people speaking of her said that the, that her whole manner, that she she seduces with her voice when she's singing even with the later songs, and she seduced as a person because she wouldn't take nothing from nobody. <laughs> but in that came, she was uppity. They said she's uppity. So there you go. Well, yeah, I mean, she seems like just a force to be reckoned with. And at that time, you really had to be, if you were trying to do the things that she was doing in the yeah. 30s and the 40s, being, yeah. uh, you know, a woman of color. So yeah, I do want to ask you, yeah, and we talked about Strange Fruit, and you had kind mm -hmm. of mentioned that that was a turning point in the civil rights movement because she was exposing this thing. And, I mean, people obviously knew about it, but she was standing up and she was really, um, you know, painting a picture of what it was like. Where did she go from there in terms of the civil rights movement? Did she make any other waves um, outside of music, just more on a personal level? No, no. It was she all didn't. through her she music. Was not, she was shy. I mean, the, the classic thing with her, from when she was at first, she was in a convent when she was very little. <laughs> and 
um, which was an, an orphanage convent. She was put into an orphanage, and even though she had a mother. And there, they, there's a description from one of the nuns, again, in this archive of interviews, that she's totally shy, she's voiceless. And then when she has her confirmation, she's given a white, beautiful, sort of elegant, white little frock to wear. And with that, she becomes another person and she's, in, she's, she's transformed. It was the same in her adult life as a singer. She was shy, she was awkward, not shy, but awkward in presenting herself. Um, or presenting an image when she was off stage, but when she went on stage, she became another person. She became this, she was transformed into the singer. Um, and I had a, a, a quote for my book, which is from Shakespeare, from Midsummer Night's Dream, which is, and I shall sing so they will hear that I am not afraid. Mm. So that I think is the clue to her. I will sing so they shall hear I am not afraid. So each time again, and with the the you know, she sang and then she was she was transformed by her own singing. And with strange fruit, all she could do in the in her statement against racism was to sing the song. And she went on doing that over and over. And when she came to Europe, there were some extraordinary films of her on television in Germany and in England, singing Strange Fruit. She's emaciated, she's exhausted by the life, but she sings it that it brings tears to your eyes. And it's, mm. it's just, the song is good, but there's, I don't know of any other singer who could have sung it like she did. She's actually living it through and she often would cry as she sang it. And she said that her father um, had, he hadn't been lynched, but he would, he'd been refused access to a hospital, a white hospital, and, he, and, and there was nowhere for him to go, just like with Bessie Smith was refused access to a white hospital. Mm. So she felt that she had seen it. And she talked to Lena Horne, who had, as a young woman, seen a lynching. So she knew, everybody knew about it. Uh, you know, Lester Young had escaped with his brother from a lynching, the saxophonist who worked with her. So that she sang it. And as she sings it, she's seeing it before her eyes. And I think it's the most, it's the most extraordinary um, statement just in the singing. Each time again, slightly different when she sang it, but always with when she inhabits the, the meaning of the song. Right. Well, the, the beautiful thing about what you're saying, too, is, you know, she might not have had the, the confidence to say it, but. Um, she had the confidence when she sang it. And for people who were listening to her music at the time who might not have been confident enough to speak out, that might have given them this feeling of I'm not alone and I I can do these things. I can be confident and I am, you know, I, I am who I am. So it is. Yeah. She she helped a lot of people through her music, and I also think about, um, you know, I'm I'm a a woman of faith, and when you go to mass, the the important parts of mass you sing, because it, yes. it makes you feel that much closer to God, and and just the fact that she could move mm-hmm. people with her voice and her message through her songs is truly spectacular. I think it, I think exactly that. I think that her song, her singing power, has exactly that transforming quality that singing can do like nothing else. And that was what she could do. And there's a nice thing that people say about her, which I found is that when when she sings a happy song, she gives it an edge of sadness. And when she sings a sad song, she makes you feel, it's okay, I'm gonna get through. Wow. And that's like a lot of good 
proper religious singing as well, isn't right. it? But you get courage from the singing. So she got courage for herself from her own singing, and she gave courage to others. Absolutely. We'll be right back after this. You, know, you mentioned her, her father. Um, did, how did Billie Holiday get her name? Because she was born Eleanor Fagan. Um, she's got the nickname Lady Day, which I also want to know about. So how did this all go down? Her father was, was Holiday, but with a different spelling. That, that um, He had double L in his Holiday. He was, he was Clarence. Um, and he was he was her father, but he, she only met him properly later on in Harlem, and not very not very often. And then he died. Um, so that was how she got her name. She changed. I, I could be wrong about this, but it looks like she changed her name to honor the film star Billy Dove and her father That's Clarence right. Holiday. Exactly, it was exactly that. And Billy Dove was a white actor, and that was her. And she'd say that if somebody asks you why you call Billy, she'll say it's because of Billy Dove. And then that in itself is a political statement. Right. <laughs> it's something very interesting. So that bit, and the Lady Day came from the uh, the wonderful saxophon, saxophonist Lester Young, who gave names to all the, 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 his, the different people. He had his own kind of language, really. But he called her Lady Day, Lady, Lady, Lady Day, my lady, that kind of thing. And it was also because there was... Um, Bessie Smith was the empress of the blues. It was making royalty out of royalty or or aristocracy out of um, black American musicians. Right. Yeah, we we talk about the musician aspect. I mean, obviously she touched a lot of people during the, the civil rights movement, but how do you think she pioneered a new perspective on jazz music? Ah, well, um, People, people said, I think it was actually Lester Young was the first one to say it, that he played his horn, he played his saxophone like a voice, and Billie Holiday sang like a, like a, like a, like a musical instrument, like a trumpet or like a saxophone. She had a way of using the voiceness of her voice, the, the, the music, sorry, the, the, the instrument, her voice is an instrument in a different way, and she understood just like a just like a jazz musician, she understood um, the whole nature of interacting with the other musicians, you know. And then she'd come so that when she sings, it's her solo performance, and then she steps back for them. Then she comes out again, and she's. If you watch her in films, you see that she's part of the band, or she's she's. Um, people would say she's making love to all the all the members of the band, because she's following each one with such dedication. Um, and she just had a voice that was, that was more, um, more complicated and more, more you know, different kind of musicality than before that, I think. I, when I look at, when I, or when I think about Billie Holiday, just the image I get is of her with, you know, these gardenias in her hair. Where did that come from? Yes. That was the photographer who... Um, 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 Hammond arranged for her to have a photogra- photographic session um, and the photographer just had gardenias and put them in her hair and did that one series of photos but then it became the image that he made um, became the image that sort of followed her so she then began wearing gardenias when she did big shows like when she appeared at Carnegie Hall which she did twice and in other places, she would wear the flowers. 
Wow. I mean, it, it fit her. And that's that's kind of the iconic image that is her. So I, I wonder if when, when, that, when she did that photo shoot, if she ever thought one day, all these years later, we'd be thinking about her gardenias and her hair. Yes, I don't. I don't know. It's 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 I have no idea because she had no idea that she was going to that her voice would survive like it did. I mean, she was she just was going day by day, particularly towards the end of her life. But I do think she's the she's the greatest female vocalist, I think, in, in from America. Um, and she's influenced so many people and has changed the nature of of musicianship somehow in, in America and around the world. Well, what I love there about- was a wonderful story. Uh, yeah. <laughs> there was a wonderful story. <laughs> a story, this wasn't actually Billy, but the difference between Europe and America at that time, there was a story about Count Basie being invited on a European tour, I think uh, before Billy went over to Europe. And they arrived at, in Denmark, Copenhagen, and there was a crowd of people waiting for them. And Count Basie said to his musicians, Jesus, it's a lynch mob. <laughs> but actually, it was just a crowd there too, because they loved his music so much just to say, welcome, welcome, welcome. Oh, my gosh. Wow. And it's and it's that that, you know, that in. Yes, it was different. I mean, Billy was having to sing in really clapped out old bars and places all around America and treated not with the proper dignity that she deserved. Um, but then when she came to, to England or when she came to Europe, that she was welcomed as she deserved to be, like royalty, you know. <laughs> right, right. What I love about your book, Julia, is you really do a deep dive into her life and you point out things that, you know, really bring a lot of emotion to that time, too. And, and Billie Holiday as a person and a human being and, and what she did during the civil rights movement um, and, and just her life, too. What, what is something that the public may not know about Billie Holiday that you found in your research? Towards the end of her life, she spent a lot of time, she was sharing a house with um, a, a pianist called Carl Drinkwater. She, he, and he described their life together. I mean, they weren't living together. They were just sort of friends. She spent a lot of time knitting and she made an enormous effort to try and adopt a child or two. She said mm. that she would like ideally just to live quietly, have a little bar of her own where she could sing and have children to look after. And I think actually she'd have made a wonderful mother and it would have suited her perfectly just to have Billy's, Billy's Cafe and she'd have sung and, and entertained people. And if it hadn't been for that disaster of this reputation with drugs, you can just imagine she'd have gone on and she'd have been, you know, maybe lived until she was in her 80s and goodness knows how she would have evolved. But she, she longed actually for a quiet life. Right. And I'm sure that we would still be going to that bar today and enjoying jazz music because that's probably <sighs> what she would have wanted for, from her legacy. Yes. What do you think her legacy is? Do you think it m more comes from the musical aspect or her um, influence during the civil rights movement? I think the, aware the awareness of, this, of her role in the civil rights movement is only re very recently properly got established. Mm. There was that book called Strange Fruit. I forget who it was by that came out a few years ago and I tried in my book to make it clearer that she was you know that her political importance and also that her reputation as a druggist druggie was a lot to do with just silencing her because of strange fruit 
And I think that's the double thing. I think she has a voice that lasts forever and each new generation loves it as much as the last. Um, and she's also is a voice that spoke out, put, she put power to the horror of the, the whole age of lynching and what it meant um, in a way that I don't think anybody else could have done. Right. Well, you know, to that point, I want to finish with this question, uh, just because we are celebrating Black History Month in February. What do you think Billie Holiday's success means in the context of the Black History Month that we're celebrating now in 2023 as we reflect on her life? I think as long as you give her a fair hearing, I think you just celebrate her as an amazingly important, pivotal figure in the history of the Black civil rights movement and Black identity, the, the fight for identity, which she fought sort of with her life. I always thought there should be a coin or a note in America with Billie Holiday on it. She mm. ought to have a commemorative note or a commemorative coin to celebrate her. Well, maybe one of these days. That would be amazing. And she she deserves it. That's for sure. Julia, yes. thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it and, and your time. I can't wait for people to go back and read your book. You have so many books so you can check out Julia Blackburn um, all over the place. Thanks, Julia. All right, if you missed anything from class, these are my office hours, and here are some top takeaways about Billie Holiday. Number one, Billie Holiday was very self-sufficient from a young age. Whether that was singing at bars or finding places to be heard, she really established her voice early on. She was determined to fight against the odds, and she did just that. Number two, Billie Holiday was actually born Eleonora Fagan, and her name Billie Holiday came from her father and a famous actress she was inspired by, which Julia points out was really a political statement given the actress Billie Dove was white. And number three, Julia credits Strange Fruit as the song of the civil rights movement because of its underlying meaning and the historical relevance at the time. The song was inspired by the poem written by Abel Mirapol and was recorded by Billie's spectacular voice, really bringing it to life. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast on Billie Holiday. For more podcasts, you can go to foxnewspodcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe to this one on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen and leave us a review. This has been Getting Schooled with Abby Hornacek on the Fox News Podcast Network. Class dismissed. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com.